Amen. Well, will please rise for the reading of Scripture this morning. This morning's passage comes from the book of Micah. Micah chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. It's a bit of an unusual passage. It says, hear this, you leaders of Jacob, rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed, Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support, says not the Lord among us. No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound, overgrown with thickets. But I want you to see what comes immediately after this rather stark picture of judgment. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and the peoples, the Hebrew, the nations, will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that he may walk, so that we may walk in his paths. The law, the Torah, will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine, under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. Amen. 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 Can I tell you an old rabbinic story? It's a story I've been thinking about for months. You know how sometimes you hear a story? We do this with movies a lot. Like you see a movie and it just sticks with you and you keep thinking about it. There are different layers of meaning. Those are the best movies to see. There's this story in the Talmud that I've just been thinking about, haven't been able to shake. And it's a story that it begins with three rabbis talking about the Roman Empire. And the thing we, we remember about Rome is that Rome was not always kind to the Jewish people. Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yose, and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And they're sitting there. And Rabbi Yehuda, he starts saying, look at all the great things that Rome has done. I mean, they built uh, markets, and, and they build these great bathhouses, and they build these bridges. He's, he's praising Rome for all that they've done. And Rabbi Yose is sitting there listening. He decides to stay quiet. Sometimes that's the wisest choice, isn't it? But Rabbi Shimon, 
He answers and he says, yeah, they've built a lot, but everything they built is for their own wickedness. And he says, look, they build markets, but just so that they can perform wickedness in the markets. He says they build bathhouses, but that's just so they can make themselves feel better after they've done all their wickedness. And yeah, they build bridges and roads, but that's just so they can charge us more tolls. Anyone feeling that way in Texas? Well, Rome, of course, does not like people speaking against Rome, and so word gets back to the Roman governor. And the Roman governor decides, he says that um, Rabbi Yehuda, who spoke well of Rome, Rome will honor him. Rabbi Yosef, who was silent, Rome will exile him to a life of silence. But as for this Rabbi Shimon, who spoke out against Rome, well, Rome's going to have to do something about that. And so they issue a warrant for his death. His death and the death of his family. That's how Rome rolled back then. And so Rabbi Shimon and his son, Rabbi Eleazar, have to flee. And the story goes, they flee from place to place. Eventually they come to a cave. And the cave no one knows about. And as the story goes, God causes a miracle to take care of them. There's a, a, a spring comes up so they have water. Some trees grow so they can eat. And so there, they hide in this cave. And what do you do if you're a good rabbi hiding in a cave with nothing else to do all day? You spend your time studying Torah. You spend your days studying the sacred scriptures. And you spend your time in prayer. And so there's Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Elias for 12 years in hiding, studying the scriptures and then praying. Studying the scriptures and then praying. Studying the scriptures and then praying. Until one day, the prophetic word comes to them. And it says, the emperor who sought your life is now dead. You are free to leave this cave. So Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Eleazar, they leave the cave after years of just studying the scriptures and praying. Studying the scriptures and praying. And they come out and they see people for the first time. They see society for the first time. And they see people toiling away in earthly pursuits. They just spent all their time in prayer and studying the scriptures, heads up in the heavens. And the text says that when they looked at the people toiling away at the earthly things, that fire came out from them and began consuming the world. And instantly, a voice from heaven, the Bat Shon in the Talmud, the voice from heaven comes down and says, Stop! What are you doing to my world? I didn't put you here for this. Go back to your cave. So they go back to the cave, 12 more months, studying, praying, studying, praying, studying, praying. And after 12 months, the voice comes to them again and says, okay, let's try this again. Now you can come out. And they come out, and they see the people toiling in their, their labors, their earthly pursuits. And they look, and where one looked with judgment, now the other looked and brought healing. Where one looked and fire would have come out, the other looked and brought healing. And, and I keep thinking about this story. And, and there are multiple layers to it. The, the story occurs in a tractate on uh, the Sabbath. It's a story about the Sabbath. It's a story about society. Have, have we ever looked around society and we just say, wow, things are wicked? Has anyone ever done that? Yeah, yeah we've all done it. Okay, We all look around the world and say the world's pretty wicked. But one thing that captures me about this story is that Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Abesar, 
when they spend all their time studying and praying, studying and praying, studying and praying, their first inclination is to come out and bring judgment, destruction. And that happens with us sometimes, doesn't it? You know, we spend a lot of time studying, get filled with self-righteousness, we look at others in judgment. It happens, it does. But God sends them back in and they study more and then when they come out, even though they look at the things that would have brought judgment, in fact, the end of the story is healing. And I just find it fascinating that when we internalize Torah, when we internalize the scriptures, we can look at things that might be worthy of judgments. We can look at things that might invoke judgments. But our words, in fact, bring healing. And that's what I can't shake. When you truly internalize Torah, it brings healing, not destruction. I was speaking with a friend of mine a few weeks ago, a um, minister here in town, and we were talking about uh, some of the things going on here at One Fellowship. We've got a lot of exciting things going on. Uh, and I was inviting him to partner with us on uh, the trunk retreat, uh, a few other things. And, you know, I was telling him about uh, what this church did, the way that this church was a part of the backpack drive, you know, providing school supplies and backpacks uh, to children in Waco. And he, he stopped me and he said, you realize what a big feat that is. You know, a church that runs 60, 70 on a Sunday morning to be a part of a project that provides a thousand kids with backpacks and school supplies. Like, that's big. And he actually used the boxing term. He said, you realize your congregation hits way above your weights. And I told it's true, you know. And so I told him, it's not, it's not just our congregation. Our congregation is... is a big part of that, but it's also the partnerships that we formed with our neighbors here in the community. You know, we work with the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, and um, we partner with Envision Group and the Heart of Texas Sweethearts, uh, various organizations in Waco that come together, and when we come together and work together, we can accomplish something so much bigger than any one of us could have done alone. Think about that. None of those organizations alone could have reached that many children. But when we work together, that collaborative nature. And uh, Brian and I were talking to Alfred. Um, Alfred's the president and the CEO of the Hispanic Chamber. We were talking to him uh, just after the event, reflecting on the events. And he said that that collaborative nature is really the way that Waco is moving. A lot of nonprofits in Waco are moving to be very collaborative. And in fact, he said he wants to coin a phrase that's very Waco, when people start working together across organizational lines. That's very Waco, very collaborative. People who are here to invest in the community and to work together with others who are going to bring a unique set of gifts and talents to the table. But when he said that, I really started thinking that that collaborative nature, that's really the future of ministry for the church. I mean, the more and more I reflect upon it, the more and more that's what I think. Because we all have heard the studies that church attendance is on the decline. Have we heard that? We all have heard the studies that uh, church membership is declining. 
And actually, right now, uh, a recent study came out that said over half of all churches in the United States are now considered small churches, meaning they average less than 100 members on a, uh, on a Sunday. Um, less than 100 uh, people. And the average right now is actually about 80. About 80 uh, people on a Sunday. But this is a majority of the churches. And, you know, I, I truly believe in the power of small churches. I truly believe that small churches bring a unique set of gifts, talents, and passions. That small churches have the power to operate more like a family and less like an organization. But smaller churches also operate with less volunteers, smaller budgets. There are just some realities which may mean that sometimes it's harder for us to pull off those large projects. Which is why I really think if we start working together and collaborating, coming together, that that's really going to be the future of ministry for the church. And you know, when we talk about the declining numbers, the declining membership, a lot of times we like to point blame on a particular generation. You all know what I'm talking about? We like to point at those millennials. Because the millennials more than any other have stopped going to church, by and large. And so, we've got books, uh, posters, articles out there you can find that just hate on millennials for not taking up the mantle of church leadership, for not attending anymore. And you, you've got, uh, you can find them online, articles that say, oh, millennials are so uh, self-absorbed and self-centered, and look, we know that's not true. We, we have the statistics that demonstrate that millennials are more likely than any other generation to have worked unpaid internships for the opportunity to get a paid job. Okay, we, we have the stats that demonstrate that millennials begin competing to be viable in the job market earlier than anyone else in terms of trying to find extracurricular activities in high school, college, to make their resumes appealing. And we now know that millennials are more likely than any other generation to be workaholics. But I'm not necessarily here to defend millennials. I'm here because that study has uh, something else that it observes. You see, a, a LifeWay study in 2017 that points out that millennials, by and large, aren't coming to the church, it also makes another observation. 66% of them made the decision to leave the church. 66%. And here's what I want us to see about this. These aren't people who know nothing about the church. These are people who went to church, got to know the teachings of Jesus, the practices of the church, and then made the decision not to return. And so in this study, it talks about the reasons why they decided not to come back. And you know what one of the top reasons was? The church is too judgmental. Almost one-third of young adults who stopped attending church did so not because they knew nothing about the church, but because they got to know the church. And they decided it wasn't for them. They said it was too judgmental. Now, look, I need to defend the church for a second here, okay? Because when you get a lot of people together, there are some rough personalities, there are personality conflicts, okay? We, we know this happens in church. And we know that what makes church beautiful is that this is a place where messy people can come with all of our mess 
and still encounter a love of God that transcends all of that mess. That's what makes church beautiful, okay? I can still find a God who loves me here, even if I'm hard to get along with. That's what makes church beautiful. So we need to recognize that, but when millennials say that the church is too judgmental, if you've been in the church long enough, you know what they mean, right? Because yeah. we've encountered it. Yeah. We have. Look, with that caveat aside, it's not just individuals in the church, though. The public voice of the church. Think about it. You know, over the last 50 years, the church has been losing social capital. We're losing popularity in American society. It, you used to just assume everyone went to church. It was kind of the, the assumed culture. And it's just not anymore. And over the last 50 years, that's created a lot of anxiety for, for pastors, for religious leaders, who feel like the church is losing popularity. And so some, many, over the last 50 years decided that what they needed to do was fight back. They needed to fight back. And so we ended up with 50 years of leaders, organizations, churches, that decided they were going to point out all the evils with the world, what all was wrong with it. You have some organizations that decided what we need is we need to get more political power so that we can reinforce the power of the church in society. And so what ends up happening? You know, in the 60s, we get church leaders speaking out against the evils of feminism. In the 70s, it's the evils of rock and roll. In the 80s, it's the evils of socialism. In the 90s, it's the evils of postmodernism. And next thing you know, we've spent so many decades telling everyone what we're against that no one's heard what we're for. It's almost as if people started viewing the church as the cultural curmudgeon, telling everyone what we think is wrong. No wonder why young people are afraid to walk across our front yard. Somewhere in the midst of trying to fight a culture war to protect the social power of the church, I think we may have lost sight of the spirit of Jesus, who ate with sinners, who embraced and kissed lepers, the Jesus who stood among those who didn't feel like they had a place at the table in religion. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And when I talk to my students who tell me about their love for Jesus, their fascination with the Bible, and the reason why they don't go to church, a lot of times the issue is that they've tasted and seen something about the church that they decided wasn't for them. It's interesting, next time you meet someone who says they've stopped going, ask them why. And listen. But here's the thing. Aren't we called to call out sin? Like, aren't we called to call people to repentance? Doesn't that involve pointing out sins? I mean, the Bible does have very clear uh, teachings on sin and righteousness and holiness. Am I right? It's an interesting thing, though. Because on the one hand, we have some people who say the church has become too judgmental. And on the other hand, we have some people who say the problem is that the church has lost its prophetic voice. That it no longer calls sin, sin. That it no longer teaches about holiness and righteousness. 
You have books out there about preaching prophetically, books out there about uh, being a prophetic church. And the thing about the prophets is they did not care about being popular. They were not good at making friends. They were going to speak the truth of God regardless of what happened. And so here's the question that, that I'm left with. Is the problem that we're too judgmental? Or is the problem that we haven't been judgmental enough? Is the problem that we've called out too much sin? Or the problem that we don't call it out enough? So where do we do? Where do we go from here? The problem is that the Bible has both. The Bible has judgment, right? But the Bible also has acceptance. The Bible calls sin, sin, doesn't it? Yeah, the Bible also has a Jesus who throws open arms to anyone who comes. See, here's the thing. When we talk about being prophetic in the world, I want us to take a look at what Micah does. Because I think Micah may have a key here. Because, let's be real, Micah has some judgment. There was some judgment in the beginning of that passage, right? Micah knows how to preach a good hellfire and brimstone sermon. And Micah may have lived thousands of years ago. But Micah spoke to a world that is remarkably similar to our own. Micah may have lived worlds apart from our time and our culture, and yet he lived through so similar social situations. Something that may be so familiar to our modern ears. Micah lived during the time of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah is remembered for being a good king. After all, he gave uh, the Jerusalem faith, the Yahwistic faith, social power. He elevated their priests. He reinforced their position in society. He drove out the enemies of the faithful. Yet while so many people praised King Hezekiah for reinforcing the right religion, Micah saw that King Hezekiah's policies were not equally beneficial to all in his kingdom. The prophet Micah watched as the rich profited off the poor. The prophet Micah watched as his countrymen fought in wars started by the ruling elites. Spilling their blood, even dying in the service of someone else's political ambitions. The prophet Micah watched as those in power made decisions for their own personal profit as they made decisions for their own personal gain, while the people in Micah's hometowns of the Chappelle suffered. Micah watched as widows were robbed and veterans were forgotten and the poor were taken advantage of, all while people gathered in the Jerusalem temple to praise their God. That's not so far apart from us now as a church. We may live thousands of years away, but from generation to generation, the heart of humanity remains the same, doesn't it? Because we still live in a world where the rich profit off the poor. We still live in a world where for-profit healthcare industries profit off of people in their time of sickness. We still live in a world where the payday loan industry preys on people who fall on hard times. Yes, my friends, politicians still use offices for personal profits, and they still send other people to war for their own ambitions. We may live a thousand years apart, but the times haven't changed all that much, have they? Something tells me Micah still may have something to say to us today. But you see, my friends, something that I notice when Micah proclaims that judgment, when Micah speaks judgment, is the motivation behind what Micah is saying. Micah has a lot of judgment, there's no getting around it. But when Micah speaks, 
Micah speaks to protect, not to tear down. And that's one thing I want us to recognize when we think about judgment. Because you see, my friends, I think we may miss that in the prophetic tradition. Yes, the prophets spoke judgment, but it wasn't because they wanted to scare people into converting. Yes, they spoke judgment, but it's not because they wanted to scare people into signing their name on a card or saying a prayer after them. Judgment in the prophets was used to protect people who were being hurt. And so Micah stood up to the ruling elite in Jerusalem because people in his hometown were being hurt. Just the same way that Moses spoke prophetically before Pharaoh to protect the children of Israel, the same way that Jesus spoke prophetically before the Pharisees to protect all those who were deemed second-class citizens in God's kingdom. When someone walks into the church and they're judged because of the clothes that they wear, the way they do their hair, when, they're walked, when they walk into the church and they're judged because they don't use the right language, because they may cuss too much, may smoke too much, whatever it is that we want to say, those words aren't there to protect, are they? Those words are there to tear down. And that, my friends, is not prophetic. The prophetic voice always moves to protect. But, when we turn on the news, and we see children being shot in our schools, and politicians unwilling to change anything as long as gun interests line their pockets, you better believe it's time for the church to get prophetic. As long as we have a system that continues shuffling students through the school to prison pipeline, you better believe it is time for the church to get prophetic. As long as we have a debt system that is going to shackle our college students with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, you better believe it's time for the church to get prophetic. The prophetic voice is here to protect, not to destroy. Just like Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Eliezer, to speak prophetically into the world is to speak healing, not destruction. But here's the thing, my friends, and what I want us to really see about Micah today. The thing I want us to understand about Micah's proclamations is this. Micah was surrounded by a lot of evil. He was. But that's not the only thing that Micah saw. Micah was surrounded by a lot of wickedness. But that is not the only vision that Micah cast. Did you see how the passage this morning ended? You see, my friends, it becomes so easy when we are surrounded by darkness to only focus on the darkness. It becomes so easy when we're surrounded by wickedness to only focus on the wickedness. It becomes so easy to, when we're surrounded by things that are negative to only see the negativity. Until pretty soon, that's all we see. And when that's all we see, that's all we can speak. And when that's all we can speak, no wonder why people said the church became too judgmental. You see, my friends, what makes Micah truly prophetic is not that he could speak judgment. What makes Micah prophetic is that he had a counter vision. Turn and tell someone, we need a counter vision. You see, my friends, the book of Micah does not spend all of its time talking about what's wrong with the world. Rather, the book of Micah very quickly moves our gazes to the vision of what the world could be with God. Turn and tell someone, we need a counter vision. 
You see, my friends, Micah did not dwell on the negativity of the 8th century. He called it what he was, but then he moves on to paint a picture for people what life with God will look like. Turn and tell someone, we need a counter vision. Though the book of Micah responds to societal violence, it paints a picture of a day when all nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. What makes Micah prophetic is his ability to give us a counter vision. Turn and tell someone, we need a counter vision. Micah sees wars and rumors of wars, but that's not where Micah leaves us. What makes Micah so prophetic is that he can see the counter vision. So when Micah stands in the midst of war, he can paint a picture of God's peace. When Micah stands in the midst of hatred, he can paint a picture of God's love. What makes Micah prophetic is that he has a counter vision. Turn and tell someone, we need a counter vision. Because you see, my friends, just like Peter, when he goes to climb out of that boat, we all remember that story. And the storm is whirling all around. And the waves are rushing up upon him. Micah could walk, or Peter could walk on that water as long as he was focused on who? Micah, or uh, Peter could walk on the water as long as he was focused on who? On Jesus, right? As long as he was, but when he started looking at the storms all around, he just became consumed by it. What makes Micah prophetic is that he has the ability to look through the storms of this world to see what this world can be like with God. He has the ability to look through the evils of the world, the hatred of the world, to see a love that redeems, a love that brings healing, and that is what Micah can proclaim. Turn and tell someone, we need a counter vision. See, my friends, if we really want to speak prophetically in this world, if we really want to speak prophetically in this world, when we have a healthcare system that is designed to generate profits from people during their time of need, we need a church that can stand up and proclaim the value of every life as created in the image of God. My friends, when we have a system that wants to devalue the lives of our children, that does not want to invest in them, we need a church that can stand up and say every child has, should be able to come to Jesus, right? We need a church that can stand up and say every life is worth investing in, amen? amen? We need a church, my friends, when we stand in the midst of wars who can proclaim visions of peace. When we stand in the midst of hatred who can speak words of love, turn and tell someone, we need a counter vision. Richard Rohr, he's a... Um, Franciscan monk. Uh, he's written considerably. And he says that there is something that he learned from St. Francis of Assisi. Because you see, St. Francis of Assisi didn't spend a whole lot of time condemning the evils of his day. And there were a lot of evils. Fourth Crusade, it was rough. No. Rather than condemning evil, St. Francis used to teach you the best criticism of evil you can give is living the good. The best criticism of the wickedness in this world is living out the vision of God's goodness in it. The best criticism of the bad is practicing better. Because when all I focus on is the negativity, then what do I see? And when all I can see is the negativity, then what do I speak? And when all I speak is the negativity, then what do people hear? I wonder sometimes, if things would have been different. 
if when people came to the church, we didn't spend all our time telling them what was wrong with them, what was wrong with the world. Maybe if we had painted a vision for them, a vision of what life with God really looks like, I wonder if things would have been different. Maybe if we had painted for them a beautiful vision of where we're going, I wonder if things would have been different. If instead of spending the last half century telling everyone what we're against, if we had told people what we were for, the love of God that is so much bigger than any of our transgressions. The love of God that is so much bigger than the mess of our life. The love of God that brings healing, not destruction. I wonder if we would have a different reputation if rather than focusing on all the things that shouldn't be, if we painted for people a picture of the way things can be with God. I wonder. Maybe things would be different. Turn and tell someone we need a counter vision. But here's the thing. It is really hard for us to have a counter vision of this world when all we see is negativity. It is really hard for us to have a counter vision for the world when we don't even have a counter vision for our own lives. Because it has to start from within and grow out. It has to start with a seed planted in our own hearts and grown out. And I don't know about you guys, but I have a way of fixating on my own faults. I don't know about you guys, but I have a way of speaking judgment over my own life. Because I know how often I fall. And I know how imperfect I am. And next thing you know, I just keep speaking judgment after judgment after judgment over myself. No wonder why I have a hard time seeing a counter vision for the world. I can't even see a counter vision for my own life. And sometimes I need to push all that negativity aside. And, and I need to just set it off to the side for a moment. Yes, I have faults. Yes, my life is not perfect. But I need to set that aside. And I need to say, God, give me a vision of what my life is going to be like with you. Paint for me that beautiful picture. Where I can beat the swords and the plowshares in my own life. Where I can beat the spears and the pruning hooks. Where I can finally devote my life to the goodness that you have for me. Without being entirely distracted by this, this mess over here. Yeah. I'm never going to be able to see a counter vision for the world. If I can't even see one in my own heart. But here's the thing. The love of God is a transformational love. Amen church. The love of God is a redeeming love. Amen, church? Amen. The love of God is a healing love. Amen, church? Amen. Find me someone in the Bible who encountered God and walked away the same. Find me someone who came before Jesus and walks away unchanged, unchallenged. It happens. Jesus welcomed people with open arms, with all of their mess. And they were drawn in. Not because they were afraid of judgment. Because they saw something beautiful and good that they wanted to be a part of. Turn and tell someone we need a counter vision. My friends, we need that counter vision. Not just for the world, but for our own lives. God has so much goodness for us. God has so much love for us. And when all, when all I focus on are the ways that I mess up, I have a hard time seeing it, don't I? And when I have a hard time seeing it, I have a hard time believing it, don't I? And when I have a hard time believing it, I have a hard time accepting it and living it. This morning, my friends, 
I just want to find that counter vision for my life. If you will, please, as we enter into this time of reflection, I just want to ask that we look through our own hearts and that we find places where maybe we've focused on the negativity so much that we've lost sight of that vision of goodness and beauty that God has for us. And I want to ask that we let God reveal that to us this morning. Can we do that, church? Yes. As the choir starts singing, if we will, please just close our eyes, look inside. Where has our gaze been fixated on the vision of problems? Where has our gaze been fixated on the vision of our own shortcomings? And once you find it, just ask God, give me a counter vision. Give me a counter vision. The doors of the church are open. Come. Hello, my name is Lorenz, and I am a choir singer here at One Fellowship Church in Waco, Texas. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about our congregation online at onefellowshipumc.org. You can also like us on Facebook in order to stay up to date with the latest events and activities taking place in our community. Please feel free to share this message and others on social media so that more people can hear about what God is doing here at One Fellowship Church. Thank you and God bless.